we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar wearing our Sunday best, which of course are three-piece tuxedos that are probably, I'm going to say, white on the top, probably black slacks on the bottom. This is all a fantasy because I'm wearing basketball shorts and a stained white t-shirt right now, but it's part five of our James Bond character study episode where we are covering the films of Pierce Brosnan this time. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Yeah, I'm trying to lose some more weight so I can fit into a tuxedo. Never mind my tuxedo at I'm this trying stage. Trying to lose enough weight to fit into a white t-shirt. <laughs> you wear tiny t-shirts for some absurd reason, Michael. Got to show off the goods all the time. You and my brother. It's like you're, you know, three years. Can I call you a generation? You're three years younger than me. I saw a sausage split open once as a child, and it really inspired my fashion sense. It's the same for you (laughs) and my idiot brother. But, Mike, yeah, I reviewed GoldenEye here. I have a kick-ass, awesome Pierce Brosnan movie to get at. And you, well, not so much. You did die another I have. I also have a movie Pierce Brosnan starred in. (laughs) (laughs) But these are fun. Like, we had a longer layoff because so much stuff happened, you know, with the Oscars, with, uh, with, with the world. And this is like a month and a half since we last did you know timothy dalton but uh, we have taken each bond one by one given them their own episodes reviewed a movie a piece in this series and it's a fun dueling review that we do we got non-spoilers and spoilers it's it, i'm glad to get back to this these have been good so far this is going to be a tricky one because we've kind of hit the same notes so far into the Bond series with quality of film or lack thereof may be more appropriate. And we've been able to have a good time. But this time we truly have like one movie that's celebrated mm-hmm. and still, I guess, holds up based on what you're going to say. And one movie that never held up and still doesn't hold up. Mike, I really need you to watch what we do in the shadows, like stat <laughs> on FX, because... <laughs> I fear, like, this episode's going to be you as Colin Robinson, who's just an emotional vampire, so he tries to take a, you know, mundane tone with everything. Right. <laughs> and I'll be, like, a real, I'll be really animated this whole episode, like a dork, because I always yeah. am. And I, yeah. that's what's going to happen, yeah, for an Probably hour. can come to expect that, so let's get into it. If you've not joined us for a James Bond character study episode yet, uh, Mike and I each pick a movie out of the catalog of the given Bond actor. This time it's Pierce Brosnan. Mike is going to be the one that's focusing on Goldeneye. I will be the one focusing on... <laughs> Did I pick that movie specifically because of the Madonna theme song? You'll have to listen and find out. The answer is yes. What we do for these episodes is the first half, always, spoiler free. We're going to get into how, getting into character portion of it, how Pierce Brosnan came to don the suit and the Walter K. P.P. Walter K. P.P.K. Whatever that small gun is, I always get it wrong. Uh, and then we will have the spoiler section, which includes basically the plots of both movies, the ins and outs. We have a bunch of different Bond name sections focusing and tearing apart these films section by section. So let's start with the getting into character section, Mike, and talk about the backstory to this James Bond, Pierce Brosnan. So unfortunately, Pierce Brosnan, he had a rough childhood, a childhood you might expect from a James Bond character. Uh, both his parents abandoned him in Iron Ireland by four years of age. He was raised by his grandparents for a few years. They unfortunately both died uh, after a, a short amount of time. He was left with an aunt, then an uncle, and all this led to him being sent away from Ireland to a London boarding school, which when Pierce remembers it all now, he says he, he definitely had a childhood where he felt like an outsider. He was nicknamed Irish by his classmates. It wasn't wasn't a good thing. But oddly enough, one of his happier childhood memory memories was when he reunited with his mother who was a nurse in london and his her new husband 
at age 11 in 1964, they took him to see the James Bond film Goldfinger. Wow. Wow, what a story. It all comes full circle there. So in a wild turn of events, Brosden wound up going to an art school at 16, and apparently at this art school, fire eaters came by to teach students how to do math work. No, how to eat fire. And this demonstration gave Pierce the desire to perform that act, which he did in public parks. Of course, a circus agent saw and hired him for three years before Brosnan was then recruited to join the Drama Center of London. I wonder if that's, you know, skill helped him out in the choking scenes of Mrs. Doubtfire. Because it was very convincing when he was choking at the restaurant. That's, that's, a, that's something we'd have to ask the man. After graduation, Brosnan's career, it began as a stage assistant uh, at this Royal Theater before he landed his first role on the stage where Brosnan was lucky enough to be seen by none other, you know, theater royalty, Tennessee Williams, who <laughs> was living in London at the time, who quickly cast him in a, in a play of his own. Uh, Pierce would act in a couple plays until the first of his five initial film roles uh, led him into miniseries in both the U.S. and Britain. In, in the U.S., it was Mannions of America. In Britain, it was Nancy Astor. And that one eventually landed him a Golden Globe nomination. And so Brosnan furthered his star when he did get to the U.S. He played Remington Steele, which was a popular detective series that ran through 1987. And after that, his film career picked back up with The Fourth Protocol opposite Michael Caine. There's an accent. <laughs> and several more films before Brosnan starred in two American hits, The Lawnmower Man in 1992, and of course, the previously mentioned Mrs. Doubtfire in 93. It's the secret to a Michael Caine accent, <laughs> trying to pick like your back tooth with your tongue. Is that it? Yeah, Michael Caine. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't, I didn't want to find what I found back there, but I just found it. Mike, as we said in our Timothy Dalton episode, Brosnan's work caught the eyes of Bond producers Broccoli and Saltzman. Yes, those are their names. Uh, to the point where they wanted him to succeed Roger Moore after For Your Eyes Only in 1981. But Brosnan refused the role once, twice, several times. And I think the middle time he actually did it because he was contractually obligated to Remington Steel, which got picked up. And my question for you is you watch an old, a bunch of old TV shows in, in your TV surfing days that mm -hmm. never ended from the 90s, no. unfortunately. I just bought the complete series of Married with Children on Apple. Go ahead. Well, have you ever seen Remington Steel? This seems like, you know, your jam. I Yeah, I've never dove into it i may have seen like reruns of it midday on usa it's it's ringing a bell somewhere in the old mike one dome there as a child but i don't think i've ever consciously watched it so you unconscious unconsciously allowed it to play <laughs> during your tyler durden insomnia days or something yeah there was like there was a time as a child when i was waiting for usa to play superstars which was like the wrestling recap show mm. on sunday mornings mm. and they always had older shows playing before and after that so it might have snuck in with like a la femme nikita was like one of those that rings a bell that, was that, a that type of yeah that type of i've never watched it consciously but it's in there it's <laughs> battling around in there uh <laughs> 
after 1989's License to Kill, there was a huge legal battle, as there always is, over the ownership and distribution rights of the Bond franchise. This caused the cancellation of a third Dalton film, which would have been called The Property of a Lady, thank God. After the legal <laughs> battle was resolved, a fed-up Timothy Dalton left the series, reopening the door to Brosnan, who had accidentally on purpose donned a James Bond-like tuxedo in films like Noble House and even a Pepsi commercial to cinch up the appeal to the Bond producers and finally land him the role in 1994 for the production of GoldenEye. Those Pepsi commercials, man, they had a lot of sway back in the day. Their star-making thing. Like, Britney Spears was big, but she got huge when she was doing the Pepsi commercials. Yeah, So the, and apparently, like, that's all over every bio online of Pierce Brosnan, where that Pepsi <laughs> commercial, he's in a tux, I guess posturing for the role, so it worked out for him. We gotta get ourselves in a Pepsi commercial, Mike. We gotta get ourselves in a Pepsi commercial, but we can't wear what we're wearing now, though, as we <laughs> mentioned up top. Mike, we're gonna talk more about GoldenEye director Martin Campbell in our next episode on Casino Royale, because he does come back to the series, and there's no doubt, you know, he played a large role in rebooting James Bond, not once, but twice. Uh, because this was a smash hit in 1995. GoldenEye made $352 million worldwide on a $60 million budget, including two BAFTA nominations for Best Sound and Visual Effects. And then proceeding after GoldenEye 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies, also a great theme song for that movie. That made $333 million on a $110 million budget, almost doubling the budget, uh, making less money, though. Not a great sign, but that also landed a Golden Globe nomination for the aforementioned Best Original Song. The World Is Not Enough followed that and made $361 million on a budget of $135. And Die Another Day made $432 million on a budget of $142. Maybe surprising numbers, considering how the franchise was trending at that point that included another globe nomination for best score for die another day and i'm glad they got back into the you know best score nominations because the goldeneye score it sounded mike it sounded like you and i could have done it on something we bought from walmart yeah not good bad. huh it was so oh boy bad. the whole sound of it and then the credit song uh thank god for tina turner at the beginning of that movie <laughs> Anyway, to go over some Pierce Brosnan. I had a dollar for every time the words, thank, thank God, God for, for Tina, Tina Turner. Turner. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Pierce Brosnan box office stats. He made four films as Bond. The total budgets equaled $442 million. The total box office equaled $1,478.8 million. And for every dollar spent, the Brosnan Bond films made $3.34. Wildly profitable. Can't say he wasn't. And especially considering that the second film seemed like it was kind of a worrisome number there uh, with with, Die, with Tomorrow Never Dies, excuse me, 333 on a 110. Uh, that's still profitable. So even at his worst, he was he was still making money for MGM. Uh, and like you said, this is kind of the forerunner. This revived the Bond brand. And it's in no small part due to Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, the Timothy Dalton numbers, uh, I don't think they were as good. But uh, I, he was still going to do the third one. He just he didn't want to wait, you know, with for the five-year hiatus. And, right. Reopen the doors for Brosnan. It's Mike, probably for the best that, that they moved on, honestly. Yeah, he was a strange Bond. I do yeah. think, you know, in the third or fourth iterations of the character, you know, they talked about in a lot of videos I watched, Pierce Brosnan really hit his sweet spot and, like, the world is not enough. I don't know if uh, you're going to say as much about his Die <laughs> well, Another Day performance. Uh, I don't know. I think Die Another Day, he was pretty much good and done with the role. But Really? Yeah, we can get into it. Well, let's talk about the historical significance of the performance of the films on the industry. And, Michael, I'll start because, for the record, 
GoldenEye was the first Bond movie I had ever seen, and I am proud to report that GoldenEye still rocks to the Good. point where I want to play the video game again. It was. It was I don't one blame of the, you. It was one of the last video games like I ever really seriously played. Like I did the, uh, you know, the what do they call it when you just play the game? You go level by level. Our, our the story mode. Role the playing story mode. Story mode. Yeah. I I did the story mode. I beat the game on what level I don't know, but I beat the game, and then I used to play with my friends at their houses at play dates. Yeah. Which I yeah. think they were still being called because I was still somewhat young enough in 1995, <laughs> 96. You were a 25 year old man going on play. <laughs> no, I, that the GoldenEye uh, N64 game is it, it cannot be the significance of what a licensing deal can do to help a movie. One, what a video game can do to change the industry too, because that's like the godfather of everything that's going on now. That be- became basically Halo, which became basically the Fortnites of today that, that are so wildly popular and making money ass over fist for every uh, video game studio out there right now. So it, it cannot be overstated how much GoldenEye that movie changed not only the movie industry, not only the James Bond franchise at the time, but also the video game world. Ass over fist. That's a, a brilliant. Mike. They say tea kettle. I don't like tea kettles. Right. Well, 8 million copies of the game were sold for that Nintendo 64, which was a great, you know, uh, setup video game yeah. setup back in the day and terrible the, controller but a great setup i agree yeah the controller was a little strange because he didn't use all three prongs well you need three hands to hold it properly that's i mean when that's pretty much the the that should be a non-starter for a video game controller if you need a third hand maybe that doesn't get out of development i don't know i, I don't know either i just know that a lot of you know innuendo maybe you know you with the bond movies fuck <laughs> I was going to talk about I his dick. I have no idea what you're I was going to talk that. about his dick controlling the middle <laughs> thing. And I, I botched the joke, and now it's a, and now it's stupid. But well, There's going to be a lot of dick talking about this, at least in my movie coming up, unfortunately. <laughs> the game grossed over $250 million was the point I was trying to get to, though, because, you know, that's like a whole other movie's box office yeah. gross. That's huge. Absolutely. So you said this was your first Bond. Uh, this was the first Bond movie I also saw live. A Goldeneye was, at least. I was eight years old. I saw it on like a second run in a, a secondhand movie theater in my town, if you can believe we actually have one of those as well, uh, <laughs> that I think is close to closing, or it seems like it's close to closing end of your year, but regardless. So Pierce Brosnan was kind of my Bond, mm. and it sounds like he was for you too, right? Well, I think the video games play a large role in that. I, I also mm-hmm. think... I also think he just fit the 90s really well for some yes. reason. Like, he was just, like, that standard white guy. Like, diversity in the 1990s was an Irish guy playing James Bond. It was an old wooden ship at that time. Yeah, still. it was yeah, still exactly. an old wooden ship. Right. There, are, there are no people of color in my movie, which You're is just right. absurd. You know, and they, they fixed that in the other movies. Well, not fixed it, but they, they definitely improved on that in the next three. But I just think... You know, when you think of 90s movie white guys, at least I think of Pierce Brosnan. So he fits that decade. Yeah, he really and he kind of fits the Bond motif, too. Certainly and before Daniel Craig did what he did with the role. And those movies really took a totally different tonal shift, too. But before Daniel Craig came along, I would have said Brosnan was maybe the second most prototypical idea for what a James Bond character should be on screen next to Connery. Because yeah, Connery, I think, is what everyone 
thinks of anyway. Yeah, there's a restraint to his performance. Like, he doesn't open his mouth real wide. I don't know if he can, just for the record. Yeah. But, it, mm-hmm. like, he plays Hurt really well. He's a vulnerable Bond at first, especially in my movie. Like, you know, all the henchmen, all the bad guys are kicking his ass on several occasions. On a top, Sean Bean, Famke Jansen, etc. You know, they're all... Uh, well, Famke Jansen is on a top. Great name, by the what way. What a name. <laughs> But, you know, I think this is a relatable kind of bond, uh, especially for the time. But he's not like the muscle flex scene bond. Right. He's not the bond that always have to, has to have the upper hand, even in conversations. Like, he is the subject of tell-off scenes. Like, Judy Dench rips him a new asshole. Money Penny goes back at him. The villains, you know, are on top of him in multiple scenes. Like, he's barely surviving. And I really appreciate that more than, you know, the, the Sean Connery role that always has the perfect where he always has the perfect thing to say where he always gets you know beats up you know 10 different guys here and there it's not so much for pierce yeah i i I agree with with the majority of that it's almost like though by the time my movie came off which was pierce's last role as bond they went too far into the uh sexual awareness of james bond like they wanted to show way too much and because he was so vulnerable maybe they thought that made him more relatable and more attractive and they could get more women in the theaters. I don't know what their thinking was with that, but they actually show the first ever full-fledged sex scene involving James Bond with Holly Berry, which I remember was a big deal at the time. Uh, it didn't work. That won't shock you to hear, as I don't think sex scenes do work in any James Bond film. But Well, Mike, it was the first movie where Bond surfed a tsunami and had an orgasm on camera. Unbelievable. And those Both. could be used interchangeably for one another as well. That euphemisms. Uh, <laughs> I also think the shifting landscape of movies affected my movie and at least the writing of my movie poorly. Yeah. Because by the time 2002 rolled around, we had Blade already. We had our first Sam Raimi Spider-Man by the time this Bond movie came out. We had the first look at the X-Men, which is already two years old, which really radically shifted everything going towards the superhero way anyway. So it felt like, and I'm going to speak more on this, but it felt like that had a big effect on the way my movie was written versus how previous Bonds had been written, including Goldeneye, up to that point, because those were much more typical spy thrillers. Starting with, you know, the Terminators of the late 80s, or was that early 90s Terminator 2? Anyway, from Terminator to the Spielberg's Jurassic Park, blockbuster filmmaking had gone CGI with a lot of effects. And your movie, the director, Tom Ahori, in particular, just went off with it. And it looks like a video game. And I don't know if they were rationalizing it for themselves that, like, this movie should look like a video game. Because we're trying to sell video games. It's probably just as profitable as the movie. But the scene where he is surfing the tsunami and trying to get away from all the glaciers and the ice what the would you hell? believe me if i told you that's the second tsunami he surfs in that movie <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> he does it that. once prior <laughs> two tsunamis not enough we'll have one tsunami we're gonna go right to two a tsunami yeah. has never been surfed in any movie <laughs> We're going to go right to two. Yeah, that's how we open and get to the climax of my movie there, sir. Well, he laughs at it to this day, Pierce Brosnan, in a lot of interviews, so it's it's fun to watch. But are we ready to get in spoilers here? Oh, yes. Let's do it. Let's slide in. Uh, spoiler warning coming at you. Spoilers ahead! Woo! Better luck next time. Slugheads. Bang! Gone! I am invincible! This is... A spoiler warning. 
All right, the spoiler section for the Pierce Brosnan episode of the James Bond character study brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We're going to start here uh, with the first of our cleverly Bond-relatedly named sections, The Spy Who's Not Me. Let's talk about the fantasy elements of James Bond and why we want to but could never be Pierce Brosnan's James Bond, Michael. Yeah, so the screenwriters of GoldenEye, Bruce Fierstein and Jeffrey Kane of The Constant Gardener, it's clear that they're huge fans of the series and they give us all of these awesome awesome callbacks at the beginning of GoldenEye. So, number one, you need an utterly preposterous and narrow escape from James Bond in the first sequence. Mm -hmm. And it's after a brilliant, like... Mexican standoff with Sean Bean's character and General Oromoff that is going to get callbacks and echoes throughout the script, which really you know takes the script to another level for me. But the utterly preposterous escape is him jumping off a cliff on a motorcycle, yeah. skydiving down to a pilotless plane, falling into the cockpit, and pulling up on the cockpit before the plane crashes. <laughs> We've all been there. So Bond. So fantasy. I love that. And then, of course, you get all these, you know, traditional introduction scenes for every James Bond up till now. You get the casino scene with Pierce Brosnan opposite Famke Janssen, and he orders his drink in the usual way. He says his name in the usual delivery. She breaks his balls constantly. It's really great. He he loses the first hand of cards. He wins the second hand of cards. It's so Bond. I mean, everybody's fantasy of James Bond is to be able to play that scene just at home in their mind, never mind getting to watch it on, on screen or for Pierce's sake, getting to play it. Yeah, the coolest guy. And he really was. He was very, very good at being cool, too, in and of himself and portraying that with Bond. Uh, again, I had the 2002 Die Another Day, and he was up against, at least the, the screenwriters were up against this shifting landscape for blockbusters going against super soldiers. And we're going, you know, everyone needs to be this big bad guy that wants to take over the world. And I know that's been a, a running theme for other Bonds, but this was the bad guys in this were a little ridiculous. There was DNA cloning. There were mm. different masks. It's, this is basically the Mission Impossible 2 of the James Bond franchise is what I felt like I was watching here. Uh, and so in that, we don't get James Bond starting off by skydiving or going downhill on skis or anything. No, no, no. We get him, like you said in the non-spoiler section, riding a wave, a giant surfing wave with a group of spies. Uh, and the, the hilarious part was they were riding this wave in what I thought at first was Russia, but turns out to be North Korea. Tell me the last time a giant wave like that hit North Korea. I didn't think they had weather like that. But okay, that's how they get on the the shores of North Korea to have this big thing go down. The opening of this movie starts with Bond riding this giant wave, getting on the shores of North Korea, getting in front of a firing squad, escaping taking control of a hovercraft, playing bumper cars with it, dodging a flamethrower, and then leaping from the hovercraft onto a bell that overlooks a waterfall, which supposedly killed a bad guy in the process before he was taken prisoner again. All of that happens before Madonna's Die Another Day song comes on, which is a nice slapper and a total banger. Mike, did... Like, the tsunami cause any damage to North Korea? Of course not! Of course not! It was a plot device! It had to get... It was basically, how do we get these spies on land in a really cool fucking way? There you go. I mean, there was so much playing with the weather in this that should have affected and had long-standing effects on everybody and bystanders that they just never talk about. There's a whole subplot that just gets dropped the minute it's brought up that I'm going to get into. 
Well, I guess let's, we could talk about the glow popping aspect because that's you know part of the fun. You know, these movies are shot everywhere on the planet usually. And, and in my movie, Goldeneye, he's in Russia, he's in France, he's in the Caribbean as you know three uh, of the main sets. But like, I mean, there are cool ass sets in the sets that could work in a video game so well. Like, there is a graveyard of old thrown away Soviet Union statues, half finished statues of Lenin and Stalin. Nice. It was the coolest, uh, you know, cemetery <laughs> of all these, you know, relics of, of that time. And, you know, there's there's a tank pursuit scene. Obviously, I'm mm-hmm. going to get into more of that later. And the whole movie. Uh, in terms of GoldenEye, is about the GoldenEye satellite, which of course is supposed to, you know, fire down onto the Earth like a real life space force. But <laughs> I think the fantasy aspect of this entire plot is that there needs to be a two day layover in the Caribbean, the fi- you know, the final battle stage, where Bond just has sex with Natalia. Yeah, because well, you gotta, we got to pencil that in. I and mean, that's important. There's no reason for this to happen because he is literally working against a ticking clock. So it's like he's waiting till the absolute last possible minute to save the world from this satellite. If he went two days earlier, he would have gotten a jump on it. He would have been able to do it much more safely instead of just having to, you know, and ride it in there. come down to the last second either. Yeah, ride in there like a cowboy with all these crazy-ass plans that Alec Trevelyan knew. I mean, he figured Bond was going to come in at the last second. So instead, I mean, he's literally on the beach staring at the water at Pois Coitus, and he could have just got a jump on all of that. Isn't it funny, too, how Die Another Day was just seven years after Goldeneye, but they go back to the giant satellite thing? Like, they had to have been tapped for ideas at that point. Or everyone was just sick of writing for Pierce Brosnan as James Bond. Because that's exactly the same plot as this one that we'll get into. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there weren't some cool dad jokes delivered, Mike. So let's talk about some live and let dad joke, as we like to uh, name this portion of the Bond rewatch. What did you have in your movie? Bond is breaking into Russian military bases like whoa in this movie. And of course, the first one he breaks into, he's crawling through the vents and he comes into a Russian military guy's bathroom. And of course, he descends on a guy taking the shit who's reading the paper. The paper comes away and Bond goes, beg your pardon, forgot to knock. (laughs) Punches him out. Imagine how indignant you would be if that's how you were interrupted taking a morning constitution on your break. You're working at a military base. Life is stressful and hard enough. Now you got to deal with this asshole doing these quippy one-liners. Well, that's today it couldn't happen, though, because it's just a tiny phone. So if you actually are reading your paper on your phone... Mid, right, mid you poop. couldn't be blocked. You yeah. could headbutt him. You could headbutt right. him. You, you had, yeah, you couldn't be blocked. But yeah, back in the day, this was possible. I'm sure that's what Steve Jobs had in mind when he th- thought about the iPhone in the first place. Uh, when Bond was doing his whole going down the river and avoiding the hovercraft, going off the ledge of the waterfall and jumping on the bell, the first thing he says, before, by the way, I want to reiterate, he is recaptured and taken prisoner in a North Korean prison for 18 months. He's hanging on the bell, saved by the bell. And he looks like uh, he looks like that other role he played. Didn't he play like uh, the guy who gets marooned on an island, like a, ca- a yeah, castaway yeah, role? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know exactly what you're talking. Uh, um, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I cannot remember the name of it. Oh God, L- left a lasting it. impact on me. Right, exactly. Me too. <laughs> 
<laughs> Mike, uh, the villains had some good lines in my movie as well. Uh, on a top, Fam- Famke Janssen, she was awesome. Uh, she shoots at a vent, and then she uh, walks into the other room, and she goes, it's clean. I had to ventilate someone. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I have the infamous shot of Halle Berry, who's played Jinx, getting out of the water for the first time in this magnificent, I think it was in Havana, Cuba, mm. and it's this like beautiful waterside uh, hotel resort. And she's getting out, and Bond's sitting there and goes, what a view. And, and, and of course, he's talking about her body, which he makes painfully obvious. That whole scene is just <laughs> disgusting. It's like, oh, I get into it. <laughs> okay, good. You're not, you're not going to leave that scene. Good. No, uh, no, no. I get into it in another section. Well, Bond is always fighting on a top, and it's always, they're always kissing in the middle of it. I mean, she kills guys during sex. I mean, she's a great villain, and she's scary. Which is not a, like, that's literally what her purpose is. She kills men during sex. During sex, she literally squeezes them with the insides of her thighs, right, you know, in the gut, and and cuts off their air supply. And she's trying to do that to Pierce Brosnan, who used to swallow fire, and it's really good showing, (laughs) you know, the fact that he can't breathe really well. And finally, he gets her off of him. He throws her into, like, the hot part of the sauna, like the the water that's Mm -hmm. Scalding hot and, th- and throws her on the ground, and he goes, "No, no, no!" With a gun on her, no more foreplay. <laughs> can you tell? Can you tell these characters were written by men? <laughs> yeah, but it's- what if we have the bad girl who just seduces men and squeezes them too tightly during sex? I hate what this happens to me. <laughs> this is my my fantasy. I mean, my uh, my nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I have Madonna, who, of course, had to make a cameo in the movie itself. I I agree. Imagine that was part of her agreeing to do the theme song in the first place. But she plays this master fencing expert. And so Bond is talking to Madonna at first. He's suiting up for a fencing exhibition against the big bad guy whose name is Gustav. And we get both Bond saying, I've been known to keep my tip up, talking about his penis, but he was meaning it about a sword. And we also get Madonna cutting in on a verbal altercation between Bond and Gustav saying, I don't like cockfights. So a lot of penis in this movie, Mike. It's like comedians <laughs> having to deal with Trump. Mike Myers <laughs> having to deal with the latter Pierce Brosnan films. He's just like, I can't best these. So yeah. <laughs> crazy i guess but i'll just do my own thing oh my god how many jokes about penis can we make into this film Uh, all of them i suppose (laughs) there mike but uh you know janice is the two-faced roman god come to life and of course sean bean has to be two-faced in my movie uh but anyway the the best line the best line is after anatop gets strangled by a helicopter, essentially. And how does one get strangled by a helicopter? Well, she's you know, attached to a rope coming down to beat up James Bond in the jungle at the Caribbean base, right? Mm-hmm. And Bond, of course, pu- or Natalia is, punches her away. And then Bond, you know, with a machine gun, shoots underneath the helicopter. The helicopter goes to crash. She's still attached to the helicopter. She gets caught in like a wishbone branch and then choked by the stomach. I, ironically, I don't know if you can call that ironically, because the <laughs> irony is so overt. But after she's just up there, he goes, she always did enjoy a good squeeze. Yeah, he's so inappropriate with these sometimes. And this is what I meant when I said in the non-spoiler section, it felt like they wrote Pierce Brosnan to be like, just 
the guy with the the Bond with the biggest libido. And Bond is always known for his sexuality and like his hitting on women and being so, you know, wanted, but it was over the top at times because I have pretty much the same thing. The Holly Berry and Bond are going down in a chopper at the end of the movie, having stolen a chopper from the back of this giant cargo plane. They're in a chopper as the plane is crashing. They're trying to gain control of the chopper before it hits the ground. And Holly Berry says as they're going down and can't get control of the chopper, at least we're going down together. Bond, of course, inevitably gets control of the chopper just in the nick of time, saves everyone, and his first thought of what to say uh. after he saves them both is, now, what did you say about going down together? Like, dude! <laughs> Enough with the dick references! Austin Powers is not really a parody. It's just, <laughs> no, it it's is not. what it is. It's just being a Bond movie. It really is! <laughs> Well, we have a couple negative segments. Even though we're not going to go as negative in this movie it is, it is, as previous movies, let's just yeah. say. There's our, there are negatives here. But this is called Dr. Please, Oh God, No. Bonds <laughs> Issues with Women. So my movie has two terrible moments, I would say, in the story where Bond just like force kisses Natalia. And this is just goddamn wrong. I wish all movies would just stop Christ. doing this. Why do, you know, these male action heroes have to do that? Like, why? Like, she's with him on a sex island. He doesn't have to manhandle her like this. So it's absurd. Oh, my God. It's so... Like, you've had years of this character. And by this time, by Goldeneye even, you know, you had the big year of 1991 where Jodie Foster played a strong female lead. Thelma and Louise came out. This was supposed to be the strong feminist movement. And yet you're still going back to these instances of forcing this male protagonist onto his lesser female counterparts. And it's just so gross, even for the time, even though it was supposed to be this macho suaveness that he's pulling off. Um, my treatment of women basically centers around Holly Berry and her Jinx Johnson character. And the first instance of him meeting her is what I said in the dad joke line. What a magnificent view. Mm. The way that scene plays out, this is honest to God, what happens and how it was written and passed a giant studio's check to be portrayed and portrayed by two A-list actors on screen. Holly Berry comes out of the water. Bond says, what a magnificent view. She looks at him and they have a conversation and he says he's an ornithological, that word, he watches birds. (laughs) And she says, oh, that word, and then looks directly at his cock, (laughs) like directly at his penis and says, my, what a mouthful. The next scene is the first ever Bond's, like that's the setup that we're to believe was enough for Bond to bed this gorgeous supermodel type woman and those are the lines of dialogue they gave her and by the way this is the part where i tell you that neil purvis and robert wade who the two credited screenwriters on this script they both got bafta nominated for their work in skyfall so it's not like they're not respected in the industry and incapable of writing a good script this was only years before skyfall as well they worked on other daniel craig bond properties too But it's just like, what the fuck are we doing in 2002? The turn of the century was still treating women like this. And by the way, in 2002, Holly Berry was 36 and Pierce Brosnan was almost 50 at the time of that sex scene. So fine, whatever. That happened and it's awful. They do write Jinx as a capable protagonist in her own right. She's better than all the henchmen. She Mm. uses her femininity and her sexuality to seduce and overpower men. She is a very smart person. There's also a Miranda Frost character that's introduced, played by Rosamund Pike. 
she turns out to be a surprise double O agent herself more than halfway through the movie and has Bond figured out completely. Completely, She says, quote, he's a danger to himself and others. Kill first, ask questions later, a blunt instrument whose main tactic is to provoke and a total womanizer. But even though she says that, they still write into the script a part where Bond needs to force her into a kiss to elude people who are searching for Bond at the time, which inevitably, immediately, again, turns right into a sex scene. Like that's these are the kickoff moments that these writers think is enough for James Bond to bed these women. Uh, so obviously, based on our last four episodes, this is you know typical behavior for the James Bond character. Unfortunately, yes, very unfortunately. Your movie seems to be almost a backlash to the backlash because my movie dealt with it, but your movie, in a way, I think fans got mad at how they handle it in GoldenEye, and then your movie seemed to go back to its roots in many ways, it sounds It's like. so weird. I feel like that's a good point, because we have another section coming up that deals with other issues with the film, and I guess I'm giving something away here, but I don't have many of those, but it's like, maybe I don't have many of those because there was so much to dive into with the mistreatment of how women were written in this one, and it sounds like women took the writing of women took a step back from where they were seven years ago in your movie. Yeah, because in GoldenEye, Mike, they actually draw attention to, like, the entire filmography of at least Moneypenny scenes, let's say, right? There's literally a scene with Moneypenny where there's the gross usual banter, and then Moneypenny says, you know this sort of behavior can qualify as sexual harassment. And Bond's like, what's the punishment for that? And she's like, someday you'll have to make good on your innuendos. Now, slimy gross yeah. both right they're they're not doing the right things there but in the next scene i mean it's a setup for judy dench who is the new q she literally calls him a sexist misogynist dinosaur and it's a tear down slash pep talk scene it was incredible i think we can all agree that's great this right. scene was great and it's just showing that the writers understand how this character needs to evolve and how the character has to grow and change and recognizing some of the wrongs of the past and not just keep going you know going forward with the typical shtick they made that sequence which is usually just played for laughs have some ethical significance yeah it had some teeth to it and i will say while Q gave that speech to Bond in your movie and Miranda Frost, who was Rosamund Pike's character, gave, basically gave the same speech in my movie and they did end up writing her into Bond's bed anyway, that does have a payoff yeah. later on in the climax. So it's a weak payoff and there's a billion other ways they could have written around it happening, but it does lead to something. So maybe that's growth. I don't know. It's still gross overall to me, though. Well, let's get into Always Say Never Again, because, you know, I know you're going to talk about different things. I don't have a lot either here, but I, I kind of want to talk about the villains, because it's not Bond's issues with women here. These are our moral, other moral issues with the film, some more of the worst scenes and themes. Michael, how about you start here? I really don't have much outside of uh, there's state-provoked and state-mandated torture of mm. spies, which... Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not a fan of. Um, I, I don't like that. And there's also, uh, there's other also on a political level, a trading, a negotiating with terrorists type deal where they actually end up trading Bond, North Koreans do, back to England in exchange for the Zhao character, who's like the second baddie, bad guy in this movie, who becomes the super soldier through all this technology, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that was done as a plot device because the MI6 thought Bond was giving up state secrets, but it, in reality, he was being sold out to the North Koreans by an undercover agent who had turned their back on England, as 
James Bond does. So that's really, I, other than that, I really wasn't offended in many other ways by what was presented. I think part of that is, like I said, because the misogyny was so awful and the sexism was so rampant in mine in so many scenes. But I also think secondarily, I mean, they did try to make this, like you said, kind of like a video game atmosphere. I think they were trying to be hmm. inoffensive in certain ways. So I think that played into it and helped it out because a lot of the uh, attention was on kind of the landscapes and the beauty and the settings more so than uh, this plot. So they didn't botch, like I didn't rewatch your movie for this, but your movie was the one where they changed the villain's race from, is that your yeah. movie? From yeah, Asian that was to mine. English? So that's, that's, that's part of the, the plot is that the bad guy that dies in scene one, uh, Colonel Wood, I think was his name. I'll know in a second when we get to the next <laughs> segment of this episode. Uh, he's he's a North Korean colonel. He dies, but he fakes his death at the hands of Bond because he goes through this DNA testing, this DNA procedure that changes him to this character named Gustav, who is basically the Willy Wonka of the diamond industry. He's a self-made billionaire that came out of nowhere because he found all these gold and diamonds on one expedition and became wildly wealthy and just popped up out of nowhere. But in reality... That was the North Korean colonel who underwent DNA changing. So it was not real, but it was feasible enough for this story that they were telling. I didn't, I, I didn't really have a problem with it. Okay. And I think he did all that while Bond was a prisoner. Like he did all yes. that. Like yes. He, yeah, yes. All I'll it. get into it. Yeah. I'll get into it. <laughs> I have issues with it. That's separate uh, of this. But yeah. For once, I actually have a positive for this segment because I do think that in the storytelling of Goldeneye, you have villains who act terribly get their comeuppance. And Bond even Good. gets his comeuppance because he gets told off by Judy Dench in the previous scenes for his behavior. So you have a situation where the Bond villains are disgusting. And first and foremost, Alan Cummings plays the uh, computer hacker Boris, and it's just all kinds of sexual harassment towards you know fellow computer uh, engineer Natalia. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. But he, like, is a total punching bag by the end of the film. Natalia gets on him, and then, of course, he is killed with the I am invincible thing because he keeps <laughs> thinking he can get out of anything, but he can't. He gets frozen frozen by liquid nitrogen or something, and it's pretty great. Uh, you have Sean Bean's Al Alec uh, Trevelyan character, forces himself on Natalia kind of to get at James Bond. It's a gross and overt way to make some of these obvious points, uh, mm -hmm. but it does call some of the past sins of the franchise you know it calls them out and i'm glad about that and it is effective and it works with the movie it's 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 teaching young boys teenage boys better ways to do it i mean if i wish they could you know do it the right way all the time and right. bond doesn't have to grab people to kiss them but i mean <laughs> other, i mean this, it's 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 improving i guess you could say i mean hopefully daniel craig will be a fucking gentleman next week when we do uh, casino royale that would be nice so we could hope. Uh, also, isn't Boris kind of treated with disdain by everyone around him all movie? The entire film. And yeah, he's, so, uh, I mean, that's that's a pot yeah. because he is seen as just this gross underling and he does always has sex on the mind and he, that's why he's he acts that way towards Natalia and all that. And it's kind of... It's, it's, it's wild that they were more responsible in writing that in 95 than they would be seven years later, though, that whole treating the whole sexism case. Well, you ready to get into some positives again? Because we got Q only lives once here. Yeah. What do you have? What was some high quality tech that Q introduced in your movie? Yeah, there's a great bungee cord 
bungee jump scene right at the beginning of the film where there's this cool Batman gadget that pulls him down. Obviously, it foreshadows the very next scene where he jumps off a cliff to chase a plane. (laughs) But there's a great car chase in the beginning of of the film with a classic car, a 1964 Aston Martin DB5, Michael. Gorgeous car. Like, I'm not a car guy, but that's a car. Oh, That's one of the more memorable ones in the Bond franchise, yeah. And he's being chased by Anatop, who's driving a red 1995 Ferrari F355 GTS. And it's just this awesome car chase that, of course, the driving instructor from MI6 has to have sex with him after that car chase. (laughs) And she kind of, you know, they meet in the middle. It wasn't like Bond kissing her. So I was like, all right, somewhat refreshed. Like, this is a consensual scene. wonderful that's so terrible that one consensual scene had that effect on you like oh here we go this is nice consensual sex at a bond film but my there's a the way it should always be yeah there's a bmw a blue 1995 bmw z3 that i'm sure every midlife crisis bought in the 90s uh so yeah the cars are awesome there's helicopters there's tanks i'm gonna get into the tank scene soon but uh, i think you know, the satellite thing is cool, even though it's overdone. And who knows? I mean, maybe that's the basis of Space Force, or that's what's in our president's mind when he thinks of Space Force. But can't be, can't be a t- it, he's had worse ideas, let's just say. Elon Musk saw that movie when he was growing up, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to be that guy. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, as far as my movie, Q does appear halfway through after Bond is re-enrolled in the double O program because, again, like I said, MI6 thought Bond was selling their secrets out to North Korea in the 18 months he was held prisoner there. That's why they traded for him. They stripped him of his double O status. He goes on a search for Zhao, and Q basically put, brings him back in. So, I'm sorry, M brings and M brings him back in, so Q meets up with him, and he shows him a couple goodies. Uh, he has virtual reality glasses for training, which turn basically the world around Bond into the training room from the X-Men. They basically stole it right from the X-Men scene. Hmm. Um, this is used twice in the movie for no purpose. One is so Bond can basically <laughs> live like he got caught and gets uh, killed and has to kill Q, or M, I'm sorry, during a reality training. And the second time is when Money Penny. I don't know how she got her hands on them, but she gets them and is wearing them. And the only reason she wears them is so she can imagine a world in which James Bond comes and basically fucks her right on her desk. Um, that's that's the use of Money Penny and those glasses for my movie. Uh, we have a UHF ring, an ultra high frequency ring that uh, can shatter glass. That's very that's used that has a very prominent position in this uh, movie as well. A new watch, and of course, a fully decked out vanished car that makes itself literally invisible. That plays a big role That's into the right. end. There's giant. There's a huge car chase throughout what I can only describe as an ice palace. In that it's literally a palace and a giant hotel made of ice that's supposed to be in Iceland, which I and, think they only picked that because of the name of the country. And nobody can still see this invisible car. Like it's not going to glimmer off of every single, you know. Uh, reflective surface in the world it's so convenient too because it runs out of its invisibility power when it would be most prudent for bond to use it because it just does and then when he really needs it to save his life at the very end and fool zhao it comes back and he's able to use the invisibility power and zhao flies off the side of a cliff all right. Well, did you have John Cle- Cleese as yes. your cue? Okay. Yes. Because Desmond Llewellyn, I was watching one of the recap videos, and I think he, I think his last one was "The World Is Not Enough," 
anyway, he has the ultimate uh, send off where he goes below and he's, you know, he gives Bond a great speech. But uh, I still had Llewellyn for my film Goldeneye. The big Q scene is the greatest thing. He comes in in a cast on a wheelchair, but the cast shoots a missile. And it shoots a <laughs> missile, Mike. It shoots a missile into the far wall. And this is an entire laboratory that that Longways has literally probably 20 people walking back and forth and back and forth and across right. and there and there. What if somebody walked in front of that missile that he shot? Personal safety and health is not a concern of MI6, I don't think. What the hell? The scene keeps going. He, he shows him the fully equipped BMW, and, he, and Llewellyn has a nice line where he's like, you have a license to kill, not to break traffic laws. So I love that. <laughs> He gives him a belt, and the belt has a 75-foot repelling cord of wire uh, built to sub- uh, support his weight. So it's it's great. There's an X-ray document scanner in, in there as well. But the, the belt actually swings Bond through the glass at the Russian archives into the yard of tanks, where he gets on a tank, and it's the coolest scene ever. That but, is a uh, really, really cool scene in Bond history. Another really smart gadget that he had was, you know, the typical pen that's also a grenade right but this one has three clicks to arm the grenade three clicks to disarm it and of course the fidgety boris character is clicking this thing back and forth and back and forth in one of the final scenes of the movie and it's a great way to get something to blow up when bond punches it out of his hand and yeah, it goes what happens the... if boris isn't a fidgety person well I, I, I don't know like bond was literally Alec Trevelyan knew all of his his secrets. He took his watch away, like which is what we've been saying for how many films now? Fifteen films. Just take away Bond's watch. You know, you have to search him, and you can't allow him any. You know, uh, fashion. What do they call those things? Whatever accessories, fashion accessories. You can't allow Bond yeah. any fashion accessories. Thank you. And <laughs> of course, Alec knows this and it takes the watch away. It was I was I was yelling at the screen. I was so happy. <laughs> Yay, bad guys! <laughs> but the scene with Llewellyn ends, and Bond is examining this hoagie. He's examining what I call a grinder. He's examining a sandwich, which yes. made me. Hungry. This is good. Yes. I haven't had a sandwich in three weeks. <laughs> So I'm on a diet. But he's examining the sandwich, and, and Llewellyn's like, what are you doing? Don't touch that. It's my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And that was his big send-off? No, that was not his big send-off. Oh. He did two more movies. But The World Is Not Enough is, I think, his last scene. I just watched it this morning, but it's great. <laughs> Which do you think was the better cue? John Cleese or Llewellyn? I don't remember John Cleese. The thing oh, really? Llewellyn, you don't? The thing with Llewellyn is he is pretty terrible as an actor let's just call him out he's not a good actor in the earlier bonds he gradually becomes better and better and better and he's just really sly with pierce brosnan in these scenes like he is just great he's nailing every line the tone is brilliant so at least for those first couple movies and what i've seen over the last week i mean this was the peak of desmond llewellyn's powers yeah i don't think comedy was was desmond llewellyn's forte uh, and that, that cue role has got to be somewhat comedic, so you could be right there. So John Cleese was funny to you, is what you're saying. You, to, to John, even compare yeah. him with Desmond Llewellyn. John Cleese can't. I mean, he can read the phone book, and I'd find it hysterical. I think he's one of the funniest human beings ever. But, yeah, yeah he's a great cue, I think. All right, Mike, this is a big section for you. I actually had smart villains for a change. But there's a reason tomorrow never dies, because these villains can't seem to kill it. 
Yeah, so you go first. What's the overall, what what were the shortcomings with your villains here in, in GoldenEye? My biggest issue with uh, Sean Bean's Alec Trevelyan is that he he captures Bond with a tranquilizer dart in the cemetery of statues. And then the plot goes awry for him because it's very clear that he's trying to frame James Bond for the espionage that he himself and his Janus group is performing. His Janus group is overtaking these satellites. His, his Janus group is, is basically causing this Russian general to turn to the dark side and commit treason. And he's trying to frame Bond for all this. So mm-hmm. in the next scene, Bond's finger is literally attached to the trigger of this you know helicopter that was stolen and people could think Bond stole it. So Bean is trying to frame Bond. And I get why that whole series of events had to happen. So my only criticism can't be just shoot him it's usually just shoot him <laughs> right but it has to be here it's like don't try and frame james bond for your evil deeds just do fr- you know frame anybody else and when you get to bond you could just shoot him well but, frame framing bond was kind of the, uh, the big part of his plan too wasn't it though it was a big part of his plan yes. like he yeah, had he's to, trying like to get revenge the, yeah he needed to frame james bond in order to cause a war between two sides or something like that am i remembering that right it's really written in it works and he's yeah. he's basically mad at james bond for allowing him to become harvey two-face and get his <laughs> face burned because bond was said he gave him six minutes you know when, <laughs> right. when sean bean's trying to fake his own death thought he had six minutes he only has three minutes because Bond sh- turned down the timer in the first scene. So it's really smartly written. I like that Sean Bean took his anger out on Bond when he knows, supposedly, as a double O agent, when you sign up for this stuff, your life has no meaning. And he's basically <laughs> mad at Bond for Bond making the decision that their lives had no meaning and turning the clock down. <laughs> it's it's really strange, but like <laughs> I'm agreeing with everything Everything Bond says in this movie, I, against Alec Trevelyan, I usually agree with the villain for a while. Right. Like, yeah, Bond's an asshole. Right. He's just always <laughs> an asshole. But here, I'm actually kind of in Bond's corner for once. Uh, we have a, a similar uh, plot that takes a lot of jumping through hoops to understand in terms of Die Another Day. We t- I talked about how Bond spends 18 months in North Korean prison. He gets traded for this bad guy named Zhao, who was able to go back to North Korea. Colonel Moon was the name of the, current, the North Korean colonel who dies. He ends up returning as Gustav Graves, who's essentially the Willy Wonka, but for jewels. Bond and Graves get into a heated fencing match after the gratuitous cameo from Madonna as a fencing instructor and her star pupil, Graves' publicist, Miranda Frost, played by Rosamund Pike because, you know, early 2000s. And Bond is able to link diamonds found on Zhao later on in Cuba to Graves' work and theorizes it all must be a front for Graves to peddle conflict diamonds. This storyline literally is dropped at this point and forgotten about because you know, 80 screenwriting mindsets. So Bond takes off to Iceland for a fancy grave soiree and M sends undercover double O agent Frost along to play chaperone and keep things from getting out of hand between Bond and Graves. But it turns out to be a reuni- reunion of sorts featuring Bond, Jinx, the Holly Berry character, a new super soldiered up Zhao because, you know, technology and the X-Men, uh, Miranda Frost, a reveal to us that Graves is actually the formerly presumed dead after the first scene, North Korean Colonel Moon and the unveiling of Icarus, a gigantic diamond-plated satellite circling the globe that can reflect the sun's light into the darkest part of the globe and act as a second sun. Now look, I tried keeping up with the end of this movie. Yeah. I'd go into more detail, but this, honest to God, is the list of things that happened. 
We have parasailing a giant wave, which we talked about. Electrically controlled sliding doors that are just giant panes of ice in reality. Somebody had to engineer those. A car chase over a frozen lake. An extra half hour on top of all of that, which takes place on a tanker plane. As well as a double cross, a triple cross, a double triple cross, and a big (laughs) bad that's using essentially a Nintendo power glove to blow up whatever he wants in the world. Now, Rosamund Pike was somehow involved in that double-triple cross. Yes. <laughs> she, yes, she was. <laughs> she goes back and forth like the movie Basic with John Travolta. You have no idea what's going on with her by the end of the movie. And where do the waves come in? I have no fucking idea. <laughs> I don't know where the first one is to start the movie. I don't know how he catches a second. I think it's because of the laser. Uh, maybe, but they don't really explain that. Like, this giant Icarus laser would have such a deterious effect, uh, uh, an awful effect. I don't think deterious is a word, but maybe it is. Effect on the the face of Iceland and this entire country and the weather patterns of what's going on in the sky, and it's just never addressed. All right, so you have a hard job right now because Goldfingers <laughs> is where we would, you know, talk about how we'd fix the problems on our typewriter, our gold typewriter here. Uh how we would fix the problems with the antagonism to defeat Bond once and for all. For me, it's very easy. Okay. For me, it's just shoot him, like I said, but don't frame him. But it's also, you know, Anatop should have just, like, slid down a rope instead of being attached to a rope when she was in the <laughs> helicopter. Right. Yours was more user error than anything else. Yeah, I mean, Sean Bean does have to stop and talk to James Bond. He's like, oh, I was always better in the scene where he gets him at gunpoint at the uh-huh. end on the satellite. You know, maybe, you know, you don't need to you know, twist the <laughs> knife verbally and you can just kill him first and then talk to his corpse. But other than that, like, my gold fingers can't fix a lot with uh, GoldenEye because it's, you know, I love the antagonism. Yeah, there's a reason. how the hell do you fix yours? There's a reason GoldenEye is fondly remembered and it's like a 95 on every review site and Die die Another Day, I'm sorry, is like a 60-something. Okay. Having Graves actually be Colonel Moon, we talked, we alluded to this, it's a cool twist in theory, but Mm. you can't then have Gustav Graves be both a millionaire and an Olympic level athlete, which he is, and pretend he's a self-made guy who just sprung up out of nowhere. Okay, like you can't have this guy who's supposed, who's this former North Korean colonel, be an Olympic level and and medal in the Olympics on a team. If he's just a guy that came out of nowhere, he would have an entire backstory that the sports world is aware of at one point. And he apparently put his plan into action over, you know, a year's time while changing his physical appearance. Exactly. So he conquered space. He changed himself into a white guy in 14 months. Correct. Correct. So, you know, that's problem number one. (laughs) But that's, I'm saying that's pretty capable in terms of villainy. He would need a pretty steady second in command to control things while he's under the knife and under the DNA test. Yeah. So you're just calling bullshit on the whole plot line. Uh, it's got it. some holes, Mike. It does. It's got some holes. <laughs> and for fuck's sake, if you have access to a gigantic diamond satellite laser mm. and you have James Bond literally hanging off a cliff of a glacier, just fucking eviscerate him. Just shoot him with the laser. Just shoot him. (laughs) Or use your electronic fingers, right? Don't don't they got that? Yes, that's what controls it. Mike, what is wrong with Bond villains and their reluctance to just fire a fucking laser directly at James Bond? 
The guy should be turned into flour like eight times over by now. The way he's avoided lasers because of soliloquies and bad aim and whatever the fuck. And fine. If you want to say he survives this, which he does because we're still talking about James Bond... Getting on this giant cargo plane at the end of this movie for the last 40 minutes or half hour, whatever it is, Gustav at this point is wearing this super soldiered up. He's got the electric gloves. He's got control of the laser. He's got his Nintendo power glove on. He's got Bond dead to rights. This plane Mm. is cut in half and it's falling from the sky. He has a parachute. Either one, don't do what you just accused Alec of doing and don't give your big bad guy speech. Just jump out of the fucking plane with your parachute and let Bond crash. Or take Bond with your giant super soldier out outfit and throw him off the plane. So what So what happened? Did they talk to each other instead of... Yeah, they, they talked to each other. He throws they? one parachute away. He says, mm. oh, look, two parachutes. Now only one for me. And he puts the parachute on. And while he's giving his speech, Bond pulls the parachute. The wind from the plane sucks the parachute into one of the engines. And he's dead. Wow. <laughs> that's it. And then Bond goes in the back with Jinx. He finds a, the chopper that's in the back of this cargo plane because it's a cargo plane. And he's able to land safely at the end of it. My it's movie. laughable to me that this villain and Doc Ock were Ugh. released on screen in the same year. Golden Eye was so much more clever. Thank God. Like I, could, <laughs> I don't think I could get through that. Like, uh, but in Golden Eye, let's just say, like he is caught at the first Russian military base, and uh, General Mishkin is basically walking in there and just goes boom. He goes, "How would you like to die, Mister Bond?" <laughs> Pierce is like, "What? No chit chat? No small talk?" <laughs> Yes, and, that's how it should be. And he actually stalls by saying, why aren't we stalling, essentially? And then <laughs> Natalia tells him, General Aramoff's a traitor. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so he's behind the eight ball. Yeah, so the Michigan guy, who's a, actually a good guy who gets shot in that seat, but he's actually you know not a traitor to the Russian government. Right. It's like, wait a minute, who's a traitor? Uh, now, now i gotta, now I got to stop and talk to you. I can't just kill you. But he was going to just kill them. So there fuck. was at least a reason for that conversation. It was, it was great. I thought it was brilliant. And, oh, my God. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry so for you. backwards in seven years. I think I misspoke, too. I said Doc Ock was... No, it, it was obviously the Green Goblin was uh-huh, Spider-Man 1. Uh-huh. But whatever. Bad guys being what they are. Let's talk about my favorite part of these movies, Mike. License to Bill, where we tally up and account for all the damages Bond caused and what it may cost at some point. So I'm going to do my count from Sesame Street impersonation here. <laughs> okay, well, good. I was one... <laughs> One Russian military base, two Russian military bases, three. There's four bases. Ah, ah, ah. Just get demolished in this movie. Billions, if not trillions of dollars. Who took more from these James Bond movies? Elon Musk or Michael Bay? Michael Bay in in fake life. Hopefully not Elon Musk in real life, let's just say. But uh, there's, of course, James Bond crashes through the walls after he uses his belt to get out the window of the St. Petersburg archives, the military base number Mm -hmm. two there. He jumps into a tank. And in one of the coolest (laughs) chase scenes in Bond movie history... He uses the tank to drive out of the, the, the walls of the place. 
he's chasing this little car with Aramov and Natalia in it. And on it, I think on top's in there. I don't remember, but he is driving through buildings with that tank. He is driving underneath statues and literally driving the base out of the statue to where the statue of the guy on the Pegasus, the warrior on the Pegasus yep. is atop his tank. He drives that, of course, into an overpass. It falls on a bunch of cop cars after it sticks in the overpass. Again, Bond with impeccable timing. So you have one priceless demolished statue, four bases, a lot of cop cars, a lot of money here. Did your I, did the Goldeneye satellite destroy anything, or was it never actually used? It dest- well, it, it destroyed Russian military base number one. Okay. Russian, it was a secret Russian military base in uh, I forget the name of the town, but it was a, it was basically like a, a snowy place. And she, and Natalia gets out because she finds a bunch of sled dogs, which was adorable. So I loved it. <laughs> so your satellite was basically like it was specifically used as WMD. It was just to, to demolish. Right. And mine was like used more as like a pinpoint exact. I don't know what the fuck the point of it would be, but that's how it was used. It was it, like to, this small area. Okay. So um, Sean Bean was waiting for Bond to finish having sex with Natalia before like firing upon, his watch. Yeah, before firing upon London. He's like, wait, let's give this good let's give the good boys a fighting chance or something. I may be an asshole, but I'm not a dick. <laughs> yeah, apparently he waited, you know, had X amount of days before. You can never say this about London. 006. I'm no cock block. <laughs> All right. Well, you have that kind of type of damage matched up against uh in chronological order in my movie we have a chopper blown up by the north korean colonel mm-hmm. we have the murder of the north korean colonel mm-hmm. we have the destruction of a hidden cuban lab with top of the line dna replacement experiments it just blows up oh no we have untold destruction of artifacts and artwork during a fencing match that turned into a full-fledged sword fight that might as well have just been done between gustav and bond with their penises instead of actual swords because <laughs> it was a dick measuring contest all over the grounds Things, countless priceless artifacts ruined. Uh, we have this gigantic satellite diamond laser cutting through the entire face of the country of Iceland. We have. <laughs> we have the entire country of Iceland. The entire, yes. Uh, we have the destruction of an actual ice palace that must have cost millions in just upkeep. Like the way you have to constantly pack in snow and ice on that thing to keep mm. the because everything in it was made of ice it's like it, it was unbelievable it's it's unrealistic it may have gone too far even for james bond Mike. especially because there's like a garden underneath it i don't know how that would work but whatever it's and, made of ice and they make lasers <laughs> yes and they yes <laughs> and they have you know electric what? pulses at the not, fingertips not a lot of a to z thinking in these stories i don't think here mike by two this is why i said i think pierce brosnan was just done with this by 2002 he was like whatever sign my name on it give me my money let me get the hell out of here and then we have of course everything that was aboard that gigantic tanker plane not to mention the damage caused to whatever the debris and cars and everything else falling out of that plane lands on below so i don't know just like quadrillions of dollars in damages as well to U.S. military bases that Icarus was blowing up in the process as this was all coming to a close. And Mike, none of that damage was caused by not one, but two tsunamis <laughs> in your film. You had two tsunamis where none of that collateral right. damage was uh, was accounted for. Right? Absolutely right. <laughs> What a mess this movie. I said to you at the beginning of this, I think this was more of, I guess I hated this movie more than I thought I did. I thought this was offensive because I felt coming out of my movie that like, 
it wasn't even bad enough for me to have a lot of fun with taking the notes. Mm-hmm. I had a lot more fun with the awfulness of like the Timothy Dalton stuff. But this one turned out to be pretty satisfactorily awful, I guess, in retrospect. It's pretty awful sounding, let's just say. <laughs> maybe I'll have to rewatch it at some point. Or maybe I'll just listen to the Madonna song another hundred times, which is it's probably so what I'll good. do. It's so fucking, it's a bang. I went down this Madonna rabbit hole on YouTube after listening to that. Of course. Oh, I've, I've said for a long time, if I could pay a lot of money to see Madonna still in concert, I would do it and I would have no shame about it whatsoever. I think it's just one of those things you kind of have to do as a human being. She's great. Always has been. Always will be. And uh, yeah, it's a different sounding Bond song, but it's such a guilty pleasure that it works. And I think Tina Turner's song is much Bond's, much more Bond sounding, I would say. Right. And that worked like a charm for me, too. There's a point in the playlist, right? Once AHA starts in, in my <laughs> playlist from the mm-hmm. Timothy Dalton era, I go back to that point and I listen Go, you know, to the end of the playlist. You I just keep hit play that. and you put your feet up, and that's I it. I keep doing that over and over and over again. When I want to listen to music over the last like month and a half, that's what I've been listening to. That is the one thing they have gotten incredibly right. I mean, there's even songs I remember in the Dalton that uh, movie we watched. There's even songs like hidden in there on the soundtrack that I'm like, wow, that's a fucking banger. That <laughs> I think they've gotten the Bond stuff incredibly right as far as music goes. The sexism and misogyny could yeah. use work. <laughs> but the music, <laughs> Oh, guys, we want to hear from you, as always, and, of course, uh, about anything else related to Pierce Brosnan's turn as James Bond. Is there something in the intervening two movies that really caught your attention that you remember vividly and wildly you were a big fan of or not? Did the misogyny get worse as we went from the first Pierce Brosnan movie in Gold Knight to the last one in Die Another Day? Uh, did they improve in some ways? Uh, do you take issue with other things going on? Let us know. You can leave us all those comments, questions, and concerns as well as comments, questions, and concerns about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. Uh, we do so love doing these James Bond retrospectives. Uh, you can leave us those. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, at MM and Oscar on, uh, what is it, Twitter? Yeah, that's what it's called. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com. And on Reddit, we're available everywhere you hear podcasts, including an especially Apple podcast. And if you're drinking a martini, shaken, not stirred during quarantine, listening to us on Apple Podcasts, we cannot thank you enough. If you would be so kind to just leave us a five-star review, it would take all of about 10 seconds and make our entire day. Michael, we're coming down the shoot fast with another Bond, aren't we, in the near future? Yeah, we're going to continue this series next week because it is one of the only weeks in July where we don't have a scheduled film study. So technically we're doing this in June and technically we're going to start our Daniel Craig movie rewatch. We're going to take those movie by movie, even though we've gone Bond by Bond up till now. We're both going to review Casino Royale in the next James Bond character study episode and that'll probably hit the middle of next week maybe the end of next week in terms of how we're going to finish this week we have an oscar race checkpoint for the end of this week that'll be a a quarter two recap or at least it'll include that because we've got a bunch of news as well but we're going to review a a lot of quarter two movies that we haven't gotten the chance to review yet in mmow's or on their in their own right on osps and i'm and yeah, we'll do something like well, we'll we'll talk about all of quarter two, a couple superlatives here and there as well. MMOW will kick off next week, and in terms of words of wisdom, let's just say more practical effects. And if you have <laughs> if you have Chekhov's tsunami, you really need you really need that to pay off. I guess it's not Chekhov's tsunami, is what I'm saying. No, it's like a not. It's it's just 
it's almost like it evaporated on content. Maybe there, maybe the subtext was that global warming is going to be a real concern in the future. From now on, it'll be called Tamahori Tsunami. <laughs> if it's a if it's a huge plot de- development that has just is in there to be cool and has no other effect on the rest of the the, the world of the the story. Oh my god! I mean, even in that Jim Carrey movie where he plays God, the lunar, the tiding, the shifting because of the lunar thing, because of the moon being pulled. Uh, uh, what's it called? Bruce, whatever, uh, something Almighty. Bruce Almighty. Yeah. Bruce Almighty. Yeah. I mean, they even make mention that pulling the moon closer to Earth caused issues on the tides. They even said that in passing. Yeah, you have to explain away <laughs> these giant tsunamis. They have you. You have to. It's a requirement, people. <laughs> Alright guys, when reality sucks Come watch these movies with us We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar Trying to make award season year-round Without the stuffiness We will see you very soon See you